Hello and welcome to episode two of the Total Quidditch podcast, a place where we talk to the people who make Quidditch what it is and give them an opportunity to share their stories and experiences of the sport. I'm Fraser and I'll be your host. I'm joined by today's guest. This man is simply the most decorated player and one of the most successful coaches in UK Quidditch history. How's this for a resume? Four British Cups, one British Cup silver, four regional titles, one EQC gold, one silver, one European Games gold as a player, as well as coaching Team UK to a European Games silver and a World Cup bronze, but also being chosen as a coach for Team World. It's captain, leader, legend himself, Ash Cooper. Welcome. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. <laughs> it sounds a little bit obnoxious, but like that. <laughs> yeah, has, has anyone ever read out your accomplishments like that? Are you kind of come to what you've achieved or is that? Um, still, not often, still no. <laughs> yeah, it's quite nice actually listening to all that. <laughs> <laughs> glad to hear it, glad to hear it. Well, I guess, how, how are you? Um, obviously, being a doctor, I imagine your experience of the, the pandemic is somewhat different to most of us. Uh, yes, um, I think in some ways it has been pretty horrific. Uh, in other ways, I also feel quite lucky in that I haven't had to deal with the stress of not having a job or worrying if I'm going to have my job at the end of it, what's going to happen. That bit is safe. It's just physically and emotionally exhausting and there doesn't seem to be an end. But, oh well. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, thank you for joining us today. And, uh... Of course, all the work that you're doing um, in your professional life. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so let's get on to our questions. Uh, starting from the start, it's a good place to be. Um, what drew you to Quidditch? Did you have any sort of, sort of sporting experience before joining the sport, or was it something completely brand new to you? Uh, I had had bits of sporting experience, um, kind of bits of badminton and this, that, and the other. Um, but to be honest, there wasn't anything in particular initially that drew me to Quidditch. Um, it was the third year at university. I had the first two years, which were kind of five, six lectures a day, essays, practicals, just working nonstop. Then my third year intercalated, and I went from like five or six lectures a day to maybe three or four a week. It was like, this is amazing. I have so much free time. So I went around the Freshers' Fair, um, and I signed up to pretty much everything and tried to go to everything and Quidditch was one of those things um, and from there I loved it. Um, I almost never actually got to Quidditch because it was really early on in Oxford's time um, and in classic Angus style, Angus the hero, he put on Facebook you know we're going to be at, I can't remember what time it was, like University Parks at 10 o'clock so I turned up at 10 o'clock, no one there, no one anywhere around, walked around the whole park for half an hour, still nothing but all right, never mind, I'm going to go home. But we thought, oh, actually, before I do that, I should probably ring my mum, because I've not done that for a while. So <laughs> I rang my mum, walked another lap around University Parks, and as I was leaving, in comes Angus with a wheelbarrow full of obvious Quidditch stuff at, like, half past, uh, quarter past 11. So I followed him and, and went to play there, and then loved it from then on. Mm-hmm. So almost missed it, almost never even started. <laughs> a real what-if there. Yeah, a proper what-if, yeah, yeah. Big thanks to your mum then, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that guilt of not having Ringo for a while is why I got to Quidditch. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So obviously that was with Oxford, Oxford University. 
who uh, of course are the famous first team was the Radcliffe Carneras, who you went on to play for and captain and coach down yes. the years. Yeah. Um, and you had a particularly successful season with them in 2013-2014 season, where you led them to not only being the British champions at the first British Cup, but also to be European championship champions in Belgium. Yeah, so yeah. I was just wondering, was that something that you'd aim for at the start of the season? Or was it something that came completely out of the blue? How, how... Um, that's a good question. To be honest, it was so early on in kind of the growth of Quidditch. We were never quite sure exactly how good we were. So the team ethos was always that we're going to go and try and win. Obviously, our aim was to try and win everything. Um, but there wasn't that massive expectation that early on. Partly because we didn't really know how the teams ranked up compared to us. Um, so, yeah, it, it turned out to be an amazing season, but it wasn't something we kind of expected. Whereas later on, I think there was that expectation that the Chimeras would stomp everybody. Um, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So just kind of went into it blind, kind of a case of, well, we'll just give it our all. Doesn't matter who we're playing. Don't know who we're playing in some cases. Um, mm. Just get the best out of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like we're going to do everything we can to try and win. But all we really know about this team is this five seconds or 10 minutes of kind of seasickness inducing mobile phone video. <laughs> That's it. That's all the research you really have. Um, but yeah, it turned out all right in the end. Yeah, how, how do you describe being European Championship champions at, at that at, at that stage of the sport? Like, did it really mean something to you, or how'd that feel? It did. Yeah, I think I that was probably one of my favourite moments, having gone all the way to Belgium with what was an absolute car crash of a, tra- a travelling out there. I don't know how many people know the story, but effectively, <laughs> we. We hired a minibus, to get on the minibus, go over, get the ferry, um, travel to this kind of halfway stopover hostel, and then on the next day, travel to the pitches and kind of play from there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, every stage of that went pretty badly. Okay. <laughs> In that the minibus turned up late. Um, we then had to, I'm sure he was speeding at like nearly 90, 95 miles an hour down the motorway to get us to the ferry on time, which was then delayed anyway because of rough weather. <laughs> so it was delayed for hours. When we finally got on the ferry, um, that was the ferry was moving so much, there were queues for people to go to the toilets to vomit and what? just vomit on the floor where people hadn't managed to get to the front of the queue in time. So I remember just bouncing back and forth between the, the bathrooms, trying to look after the players with the few of the people who weren't seasick. We eventually then got there, obviously like six hours late. Managed to turn up at the hostel where we had um, two and a half hours sleep from like stepping into the hostel to having to leave again. We had two and a half hours before having to go to the pitches where the driver then got lost and we turned up late for the first <laughs> game and then proceeded to to kind of win it. Um, so it, against all the odds we managed and it was, I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, my only regret is that the whole team couldn't go. Um, but I think it, it was a really strong bonding experience for us as a team and kind of the birth of the Quidlings, um, properly. Sounds Sounds incredible. And obviously having faced all that adversity, like away from the pitch, that load on the pitch, like really brought you together as a unit. Absolutely, 
Uh, so later on, sort of the end of that season, you then chosen as captain for Team UK to go to the Global Games in Burnaby, Canada. Yes. So going to the other, basically the other side of the world to play Quidditch, which is, uh, yeah, what, what was that experience like? Because I believe you didn't come out of it in the best of shape. No. So I, I ended up quite seriously damaging my thumb um, to the point where I couldn't really grip for a couple of weeks afterwards um, and still occasionally have issues with it now. Um, but yeah, I think Burnaby, Canada was a bit of a mixed bag. Um, so that started to become where bits of my degree were a bit of kind of interfering in some ways. So I could only really go out for the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I had to come back on Monday morning to go all the way to Canada, which was a bit excessive. But, you know, dedication, I guess. And then going out there, there were some really good aspects. Like, I really enjoyed a lot of the, the camaraderie and the experience and meeting all the international players and kind of scouting and working out how the teams were playing, how the countries were playing, because at that point we hadn't really mixed all that much internationally. But there were lots of things that I found quite disappointing or frustrating in how Team UK played and quite a bit of the ethos around Team UK and um, kind of the mentality of, of some aspects of the team. And we didn't do as well as I'd hoped we would or felt really we could have done. So that there were some kind of frustrations around it. But I think that probably led to how things developed from there on. So I spent most of the plane journey home with this A4 pad of paper, um, just scribbling pages and pages of notes and thoughts, uh, which I think I still have somewhere hidden in a box somewhere, <laughs> which was like all the issues and how to, like the, the, I guess the plan for how to improve and develop Team UK and UK Quidditch from then on. I guess that's pretty interesting, sort of, I guess, mixed emotions for the tournament, but then coming away with something productive to be used in the future and sort of what it's gone on to build is uh, pretty amazing. Good, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you think so. I just, <laughs> yeah, I was on the plane vowing that that would never happen again and it would be better every year from then on. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, so going back to uh, the Chimeras, uh, just in your opinion, what made those early Chimera's team was just so formidable. What was their key mm. to success? I think there was a few things. Um, and I think probably one of the main ones is the work that the people who... Cause I, I joined, I think, nine months-ish after OXO kind of had some semblance of a Quidditch team. So when I started, they'd already been kind of playing for a, a few months by hanging a single hoop in a tree or lodging it in a bench or something. Um, but I think a lot of what made the early cameras really formidable and successful was the work that those earlier people did, especially people like Angus. Um, I don't think he gets enough credit for the work that he did developing a really tight-knit group of people, um, all kind of on the same page. We all had the same kind of mentality around it, that this is really good fun and we're all in it together to look after each other and have a good time but we're also going to try and win. I think a lot of teams struggled with half the team were like, were there for the fun and half the team were there to try and win, but overall they didn't really gel. Whereas we all had that mentality partly from the earlier work. Um, and from there, I think the other stuff that made us different, I think we focused fairly early on on physicality and fitness. 
and that was a core part of our training and our work alongside very early from the start we tried to focus on kind of the psychology of the game and aspects of trying to win the game psychologically um so building resilience in the team especially because quidditch populations on average have fairly low resilience and you could have a whole kind of hours discussion about that that's quite an area of interest for me um but we built on that resilience we tried to work on that and also we always tried to build very quickly this idea of a unity and identity so things like the kits and the chants one of the main things we had was the face paint everyone had one or two stripes which stood you out um and it started it seemed to start anyway to intimidate other teams it worked i'll tell you that (laughs) yeah exactly and there was that element of like we had the two stripes you went to eqc and it's freezing cold and was completely wrapped up but you got the two stripes and another team from somewhere in europe will come over like oh my god you're a chimera oh my god it's a chimera um which which is really it boosts the the kind of morale of that player and the team but also you got I knew it could see there are games where when you line up, we did the chant and you line up with the face paint and the grizzly ang- like scary look and this reputation that we tried to foster that we will absolutely beat you into the ground physically. Well, we'll help you up and we'll support yeah. you and we'll smile. We're lovely about it and we'll share our hot chocolate afterwards, but we're going to hit you hard into the ground. You could see teams when you line up, they'd already given up. I think that was an element of that formidableness. We knew that we can roll you over. And as soon as we start, most teams gave up. And if we started to struggle, we knew we had that resilience there. Yeah, that, that, that sounds all pretty on point. There's uh, someone who faced those great teams back in the day. And, uh, just creating that whole kind of mystique around a chimera identity. It, yeah, it, it did create that real sort of, oh, wow, we're, we're up against something pretty, pretty incredible here. Um, and a, a lot of that was that kind of mystique and the team unity uh, yeah with a few little psychological tricks thrown in like working out early on who the players are on the opposition to either target or irritate or kind of wind them up and watch them explode and yeah <laughs> maybe, maybe a bit sneaky but it worked well of course it's pretty successful um so one thing you touched on there was fitness and i know both as a player and as a coach that was kind of one of your key pillars you used to say fitness 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 so important to you uh, so i just want you to describe your personal training methods like what you did as an athlete to stay in shape and also what you do as a coach yeah okay um so for me personally um i never liked the gym and um, i thought it was really intimidating or frustrated if you know, I have to pay loads of money and i can't even use the damn equipment because some steroid head is using it for like two hours at a time to check himself out in the mirror and just really wound me up so i did everything pretty much at home um so i had my own set of weights that i invested in which was less than three months gym membership and then had a routine of kind of various different upper body lower body abs kind of stuff that i do at home pretty much every day of the week um and then on top of that always ran the Quidditch fitness sessions um, with my mentality being that if I'm asking my team to do this, I need to be able to do that and more. Uh, it's unreasonable for me to ask someone to do something that I won't do myself. So I ended up doing kind of extra fitness sessions alongside 
to make sure that I was as fit as the players on the team. Um, so that's kind of what I did. And then in terms of coaching, it was, as you said, but it's a massive part of coaching for me, um, especially early in the game. Unfortunately, early in the game, if you could kept throw and catch and run moderately fast for a moderate amount of time, you were a pretty high-level player. And unfortunately, it's still pretty similar now in that if you are, have a good physical basis, you're fairly fit, you're going to be up there in the higher-level teams. Um, because actually teaching you the skills of Quidditch is not that difficult. It's the physicality that is often the problem. And more importantly, the people who are dedicated enough to get fit enough or were dedicated enough to get fit enough for what I wanted them to be as their coach, they were the ones who would be dedicated enough in other areas. So as well as people getting fit, um, so you had the physicality in the team that I always really thought was very important, it also helped to weed out and show the people who were either struggling and needed more support or actually who just weren't that motivated and were never going to get there. Um, I yeah. I don't separate the week for Jaff. But I've always thought of you as kind of a Richie McCall sort of figure within the sport, sort of work hard, play hard, set that example. And kind of what you said there about you wouldn't expect anything that you wouldn't do upon your teammates. Something that Michael Jordan actually said in uh, The Last Dance. Um, so it's interesting to see that mentality filtering down into different sports and to obviously Quidditch being an amateur sport, kind of having that, that mindset. Um, it's a good approach to have, I believe. Well, I'm thrilled to be... Uh kind of related to or thought in any way towards Richie McCall or anyone like that. <laughs> I tell that's a massive compliment. <laughs> You're welcome. Um and yeah just going talking about Richie McCall and all his success as a rugby player. Um you said at the top of the show that you're the most decorated player in in UK Quidditch history and you're the only player to have won four uh British Cups. Sort of two with uh, Oxford, and then two with Velociraptors. So out of the four that you've won, which would yeah. you say was the most rewarding to win and why? Hmm. Um, I think the second one. So I think the second one with the Chimeras. So the first one was the first year, and uh, it was great. And it was the one that I was captaining, and it, was, it will always be very important and quite a special memory. But there was an element of it was so new and we were the best early on. But no one really knew how to count us, no one really had a chance to do anything about like, kind of working out how to beat us, because we were... Because it was also new, we never really played against them. Um, the second BQC, with that painful silver, was, oh, <laughs> oh, the less said about that, the better. Um, but yeah, well done to the opposition, etc., etc. Well, but, you know... <laughs> sticks in the sticks in the throat a bit, but that third one was kind of the redemption. We got we got the gold back, which we felt we had deserved or should have won the last year, and also it was the year that everybody had had then three years to study us and work out how to try and play against us. They'd had the opportunity, they'd had the practice, and we were still able to go out and fairly comfortably beat most people. Um, and it was with the team that. We kind of grew from grassroots together, having all come in, still hanging hoops in trees and running around in the snow with like an actual broom or a mop head or something. <laughs> it was those same players that came to more professional 
looking kind of it felt more like a real sport and felt like we definitely deserved it because no, still nobody could beat us and that's why that was important the raptors ones felt more like well you've we've cherry picked a lot of the best players for various reasons and it was kind of always expected that we were gonna beat everybody okay so i guess a, a combination of sort of that redemption arc and then kind of sticking around with sort of your early days your mates from the very beginning yeah seen the very amateur level of the sport and then obviously the competition element to having more teams sort of able to challenge you yeah and that those teams trying watching them try tactics that they think might be as um, as being able to respond to it and even with all their research and all their effort and practice we can still beat them mm-hmm. fantastic feeling uh so we're kind of gonna focus more on the coaching side of your career now so it's something you had a big impact with within the uk um and obviously further afield as well so just like to ask you how did you get into leadership um, like what made you want to become a captain and then later on a coach? Hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, I, I'm trying to think of an easy way to say this fairly quickly without kind of just becoming massively self-reflective for an hour. <laughs> uh, leadership, I think I've always had a bit of it in me. Um, and I, I like to get things done in a way that I I think they can be, um, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, I kind of, I've always enjoyed being part of a team and seem to, for whatever reason, end up kind of drifting to a certain leadership position in that team. So, for example, I, joined, I was an air cadet for quite a few years. So kind of a lot of the physicality that I had and the fitness I had was from air cadets, all their physical training. And a lot of that came into Quidditch later on. But even there, I was the kind of one of the, um, I was in, eventually an instructor sergeant there and I was in charge of discipline and had that leadership role there. So I really had some elements of leadership. I think in Quidditch, it was more an element of, I think after the first few weeks, we decided we we're going to turn it from a lot of randomism in a park with bits of pipe to a more formal society, which needed things like a secretary and a treasurer and that kind of stuff. And I just volunteered for one of them because no one really wanted to do it at the time. And from there, kind of bit by bit, not really that intentionally developed up to various leadership positions. Um, yeah, I, I just, I really enjoyed it being, I really enjoyed the leadership aspects. I really enjoyed being captain, um, partly because it felt like it cemented a position within that Quidditch family. Um, and I felt I could do quite a lot of good to help with that on the pitch and off the pitch. And then from there, started moving more towards coaching. Um, partly because with the thumb injury, I started to struggle to play um, without just quite a lot of pain. Um, and often spent more of my captaining kind of doing the sideline stuff. And also coaching allowed me to have more of a role off the pitch in various aspects and things like picking teams more and developing the team as opposed to being given a team to captain if that makes sense a bit rambly but yeah so i guess uh, the initial one was kind of be able to shape a team in your image and kind of have that that involvement and then later on sort of be able to have that even greater influence um yeah 
Yeah, I, I don't particularly think it was all that unique to me. I think that that pathway through kind of the coach, uh, captain coaching style is maybe more unique for me. But if you look back, pretty much everybody who was involved in those early days ended up in some kind of important role, be that TD or on Quirk or development or this, that or the other. Uh, there was very much the ethos back then that if you wanted something to happen, like a tournament, you all pitched in. Because if you didn't, it wouldn't happen. So people who didn't want to pitch in left. And it was it it, it meant that the community was just full of the, the go out and doers. I might go out and doing where I thought I could do the best and have the most help and support for everyone was captaining coaching, that kind of side. Yeah, for sure. I've really seen with your generation, I guess a bit of my generation of UK Quidditch, is that mentality that if we don't do this, this doesn't happen. Like, yeah really served the community well mm. uh so sorry about that so as one of the people who was kind of involved in uk quidditch quite early on where did you learn to coach like how, how did you develop your skills right so um i think in part there was some leadership elements in there anyway from things like um uh like cadets air cadets um and other various kind of badminton captain that kind of thing so there's elements of leadership in there. Um, I think I, I've also been very interested in kind of people's psychology, um, hence the career I've ended up in, in psychiatry. Um, but I've always been interested in that side of it and kind of supporting, shaping people, getting people to work together as a team, kind of that kind of aspect of it. So kind of, I think the, the leadership side of it, there was elements there that have definitely improved. I've definitely done a lot of work kind of reading around and practicing and improving. The coaching side, the actual skills bit, a lot of it really was self-taught. Um, and that there was, Quidditch back then, there wasn't really any defined skills. Um, we all just kind of learned a bit by practice or watching other people. Like in your last episode with Lucy, she was saying how she kind of just watched the, the footage of other um, teams or, or mid-game would be like, oh, that worked well, I'm going to do that and make that a thing. There was an element of that trial and, trial and error. So the way I approached it was I've always tried to break Quidditch down into the fundamental theories behind it. And if, that's always the way I tried to teach it as well and coach it, is if you can teach this is the fundamentals and how they work, these are the pieces of the puzzle, it's up to you as to how to fit them together, it allows you to work out how to fit bits together and teach those elements of where they might fit and also be able to focus and break things down so actually if this is the fundamental aspect this is the point of this part of the game uh-huh. then the important bits of that are a b and c so in which case we need to work on a b and c and then i go away and think about well how can i find a, a drill or some kind of teaching or coaching that will help develop a and some of that was robbing it from other, other sports like american football rugby netball basketball whatever it is and other bits was well actually not a thing nothing really fits but i want the outcome to be this i'm starting here so i'll try and work out the path to that i think that's all in that a4 wad of paper so my there's various different <laughs> ideas some of which worked horribly others worked very well but yeah it's mostly self-taught trial and error and practice and the theory yeah, it's interesting to hear. Because obviously, in more established sports, you've got sort of years and years 
of well this kind of stuff and i imagine say for the early days of football that's what coaches were doing mm. they, they've got that framework in place uh so it's interesting to see sort of how you came up with these ideas for training and these yeah. different... i think other sports are much easier in that most of them have one game going on or they have just one ball which is simple uh, I think one of the things that also drew me to coaching is I, I really enjoy the theoretical, mental kind of challenge of it. There is effectively three, arguably four different games going on at once. It's trying to work out how they interact together um, and breaking that down. Other sports, I think, are much, much simpler. There's just the one ball. They're amateurs, really, compared to comparison to us. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yes, do, do you prefer to captain or coach? Like, do you approach both roles differently? How do they compare? Um, initially, they were basically the same um, because the communities and the teams weren't big enough. So, effectively, if you were the captain, it meant you led the training sessions as well. Um, and so you effectively coached. Well, that's how it worked with the teams I was involved with. I know other teams had different things. Um, later on, they became slightly more distinct with the captain being a kind of figurehead. Um, and the coaching, coaching kind of having a more of a role in development and training and tactics and that kind of aspect. So later on, because I do really enjoy the tactical, theoretical, kind of intellectual aspect of it, I did enjoy the coaching more, and I, I really enjoyed the off-pitch role of the coaching. Um, but I, I do, I did really enjoy playing, um, and I still would like to play if I had. I think the, the issue I had was the difficulty of trying to balance work and the rest of life with Quidditch. Because um, I, I found that I didn't have enough time to dedicate to Quidditch to continue at the level I wanted to. And I didn't want to kind of slide away into becoming this fairly unfit in comparison, not all that great anymore. Kind of hanging on to past glories um, and resenting the fact that on my one weekend off in four weeks, I end up freezing cold on the pitch, playing for five minutes and starting to dislike the thing that I loved so much. Um, and as I, as I got closer and closer to that point with my career at the same time and various exams and moving and all kind of fun, you know, that kind of stuff, I found that I it was harder to keep up the captaining side as opposed to the coaching side. Um, so I ended up leaning much more into the coaching side because I, yeah, because I, I could do it a bit better. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, making sure that you do everything as you want to do it rather than sort of not really on your terms. Um, mm. Just moving on now to Team UK. Um, so obviously, another a major part of your coaching career what convinced mm. you to take up the team uk head coach role because obviously you were the captain and you're saying you really enjoyed playing and being part of the team why did you step up to be what the head coach was to do with the notepad yeah it was there's a lot of it to do with the notepad um i really enjoyed captaining i would have very happily carried on captaining but the opportunity came to coach and following the frustration that I had around a lot of stuff at Canada, I felt that I could do quite a lot of good as a coach. Um, part of me really regretted the fact that I wouldn't be able to play as much anymore or at all really as a non-playing coach, um, which in part was a decision that I put on myself 
Um, I think I probably could have been a playing coach, but when I wanted to do it properly, if I'm going to do something kind of in all areas of my life, my personality is that if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it properly. Um, so that's where the kind of non-playing coach came from. But yeah, a lot of it was, I felt I could do a lot of good. I had a lot of ideas. I had this notepad of just my frustrated irritation and anger of all the stuff that went wrong and how to fix it. And I had a grand vision for how it should and could be and felt I could get that in place and it would be a benefit to Team UK, but also the UK nationally. Um, so I was like, I jumped at the chance to be like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take these steps forward as much as I can and try and build this vision that I think we should and could be. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so while you were Team UK head coach, what kind of characteristics or attributes were you looking for in a, in a player? Oh, good question. One that I've been asked lots of times by lots of different players <laughs> across the years. Um, one of the things that I always found very important and would openly kind of tell everyone is you could be the world's best player, but if you don't fit with the team, I'm not interested. But the main thing was you needed to be able to fit with the team and gel with the rest of the team. And effectively, you you needed to be the right shape. I was building a jigsaw piece of a team um, with that reputation and the characteristics and the ethos. And if you didn't, you if you, if you as a piece didn't fit, then unfortunately you, you weren't part of the jigsaw. Um, and the stuff that I was looking for was actually less to do with your skill at the time and more to do with um, kind of your mentality, your psychology um, and the dedication and motivation. Because if, if you could show that actually you were pretty bad at the skills, but with a little bit of coaching and you had the motivation and dedication to improve quite a lot, then I'd, I'd be quite keen to get you into the team, at least initially, to try and see where we could go with you. To Can we get to those skills? It's much better than having a skilled player who they've already reached their maximum and they're not really got that much dedication to do anything differently. So it, it, the stuff I was looking for was that baseline physical fitness, the, the mentality, the dedication and the teachability rather than a finished package. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, this next question would be, so as TK head coach, how hard was it to strike a balance between being a friend, because obviously you had a lot of friends who were players on mm. the team, and also being a critic of your players, especially when it came to selecting squads and lost tournaments? Yeah, that was really hard, actually. Um, that was probably the hardest part of the job, was trying to have that balance. Um, because it, in times it, they are different, a bit like family, very, very close friends, off on holidays together and slash tournaments, spending up weekends and free time together. You did get very close to the players. Um, and we all did to each other. So having to kind of criticise or say, unfortunately, I'm cutting you or you're not playing was really, really difficult. Um, I ended up using various different techniques to try and help with that. Um, so things like the infamous hitty stick, uh, which I think some people have heard about, where effectively, as a coach back then, I had to be all things to all people. So I was the kind of authoritative tactician on the sideline. Um, I was a supporting shoulder when you came off to kind of look after you. I was your medic, your first aid person. 
I was also the person who would fire you from the team. And then also, in th hopefully, the guy who would go down to the social with you afterwards and board games or drink or whatever. So trying to have all of those roles in one, there's a risk that it all kind of blur into one and no one really knows who you are or what hat you're wearing at the time. So I tried to use different techniques like the hitty stick. So for those who don't know it, effectively for each training, I would find some kind of branch or stick that I would wield menacingly and shout about. <laughs> and it, it threatened to hit people with this hitty stick. Obviously never did um, for any policemen out there listening. Never did any of that kind of stuff. But the, the, the aim was it, by holding this stick and having a bit of a joke about this, I'm going to hit you with it. It allowed me to show that this is the time when I'm going to be critical, but couch it in a term that wasn't too targeted and wasn't too hurtful. It's, you know, it's hitty stick ash. This is all the stuff that you've done wrong. And this is how we need to improve it. And, you know, if you don't, I'm going to hit you with this stick. So it allowed me to have the hat of being critical um, and kind of negative in some ways, constructive criticism, whilst making that boundary clear so it didn't blur into everything else and trying to take some of the sting out by having a bit of a joke alongside it. So there's various different techniques that I used for all the different roles that I had. Uh -huh. But that's that, probably the more famous one. to break that distinction there. Um, you've talked about psychology as being really important both as a yeah. player and then talked about a lot as a, a coach and obviously something that you're very passionate about. Yeah. So I was wondering, is there any other kind of examples you could think of in terms of how you use that as a coach? The psychology aspect? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, as I'm sure you've probably gathered, it's, I think it's the most essential part of having a, a successful Quidditch team. Um, and there's, there's, it's hard to think of lots of examples because it's so ingrained in everything that we did. So there's elements of so the psychology of supporting your own team um, to trying to work out who plays who with best, and recognizing when you know this the characteristics of this player are like this the characteristics of this player are like this so there had some players who um they played their best when the team was struggling and they came on and they, it gave them that fire to go in and do something so i kind of saved them for later in the game or put them at, at tactical points where other players played really really well but when things started to wobble they felt there was too much pressure on them and they started to crack under that so it's about bringing those people off in that situation to replace them with one of these kind of other styles of players. So trying to work out which which pieces of the jigsaw work together best in which situation. Um, so there's loads of different elements of that um, and trying to make sure that I knew the characteristics and the personality of every single player and how they all work together and testing that everyone with each other um, either directly or indirectly when they were realising it in the trainings. And then there's a psychology of how to defeat your opponents. So trying to work out what they'd struggle with or kind of how they expect you to play and how you work with that. So um, good examples of playing against teams like France or Belgium. They expected us to play in a certain way. So at times we'd start off playing something completely different just to throw them off. Um, or we'd start off and put on the team and get them to play in exactly the way that France or Belgium, for example, were expecting us to play, and then quickly change that. So they kind of fall into that, oh, this is the routine rhythm, we know what we're doing, and then change it on them. So there's that kind of element. And then targeting individual players. Um, so one of the 
more well-known stories of this was the first BQC. Um, Alex Greenhalge, back then, very formidable player. I think still, well, when I stopped playing one year and a half ago, still a very formidable player. Alongside a player from Cameroon called Bone Cruncher, who were then very similar to Alex. Two okay. very big, imposing players. Um, lots of physicality. But both of them, to some extent, an element with kind of losing their temper, becoming quite frustrated. So the psychological targeting in that game, we put Bone Cruncher on at the very start. His main aim and his only job was to hit Alex Greenalge as hard as possible. That was the only instruction I gave him. At the start, as soon as you get the opportunity, hit Alex as hard as possible. And then immediately sub off. <laughs> which is what we did. And he hit Alex... Um, I think given the way that it turned out, I ended up knocking Alex over and then immediately subbed off. And Alex is a really good player and probably could have outdone Bone Cruncher, but we didn't give him the opportunity. And it wound Alex up. And then as the keeper's getting wound up, the defence gets wound up and it starts to break things down. So there's that element of... It sounds a bit cruel, but... <laughs> In a way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> After the game, we're all very friendly and supportive. You know, as the whole me- mentality of we'll beat you into the ground... But we'll help you up with a smile and share our, uh, share our food with you. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's that element of using psychology to target other teams as well. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I really liked how you were talking about how within your lineups, a lot of people generally think, oh, okay, we need to play this style of Quidditch or we need to put these players on so they play in this manner, kind of thinking about it in a game sense. But I guess you were thinking about that, but also the mentalities and which players play best in which periods of the game, which I think a lot yeah. of people don't really think about. So that, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so a little segue away now. Can you tell us about the, the injury study you conducted? Kind of, sort of what your views are on concussion within Quidditch and how do we go about pre- helping to prevent that? Yeah, so that's a good question again. Uh, there's actually now been two injury studies. We're just still trying to get the other one published and COVID has kind of scuppered that a bit. For though, I don't know how much people know about it, but effectively, I did a lot of the first aiding for most of the tournaments early on in Quidditch and started to recognise issues with injuries. And so kind of initially by myself and then with the help of some of the doctors um, who weren't involved in Quidditch, conducted a study where we looked at all the injuries, what caused them, what happened from them. Um, just a, a self-questionnaire, self-reported questionnaire. And that initial one showed a high level of concussions and some other kind of sports-related injuries, but nothing out of the ordinary with compared to, say, rugby or the full contact, but a high level of concussions, especially in women and female players. Um, the second study we did, which I don't think is as well known because obviously it's not published yet, we, instead of using a self-reported questionnaire, we worked with Epione, who are amazing, a great first aid team, who we recorded professionally recorded all the injuries and everything that came through and actually the rate of concussions dropped massively there's still slightly higher level of concussions compared to rugby even which isn't great but not massive compared to the first study and interestingly male players are slightly more likely to get a concussion than non-male players unlike the first study so in terms of kind of what it shows i think there is an element of both the studies shows a higher issue of concussion. Um, and a lot of that is to do with the way that we 
do the tackling with the one arm tackling. The only the easiest way to bring someone down with a one arm tackle is to get is to use their momentum to throw them to the ground where you have no control over that and they have no control over that. And given they're holding a broom, trying to keep that out of the way, often holding the ball, there's limited availability for them to defend their head from hitting the ground. Whereas in a two-arm, say, rugby tackle, you have some control. It's your momentum that you're using normally, um, and you can control it, and they normally have at least one hand free. So there's that element of it. The other element which is shown by the difference in the two studies is that actually self-reporting, Quidditch players self-report injuries that, or they think they've had an injury when actually they haven't. And there's a misunderstanding of what a, a true concussion is. Um, and some people were reporting when they have a bit of a headache because they hit their head on the ground. That's not particularly a concussion. That's just because, you know, you hit your head on the ground. If it was your shoulder, your shoulder would hurt mildly as well. Mm-hmm. So there is that element of, that at the time there was not a huge, there wasn't a very good knowledge of injuries and management of injuries and looking after your own physical health and fitness amongst Quidditch. Um, and that has improved slightly, I think. Um mm-hmm. You can, it's interesting, you can definitely see the difference in the more established teams. So um, the more physical, more established, fitter teams normally have less injuries. And part of that's because they're fitter, but also it's because they have a better understanding of what an actual injury is and how to manage it and how to look after yourself. Whereas the less experienced teams will maybe play on an injury when they shouldn't do or report themselves when they have to have an injury when they don't. And there's not that much understanding, which, again, I think is something that coaching can work okay. improve. I guess sort of the study has helped increase that knowledge, um, sort of educate people on mm. should be aware of um, what to think about. Yeah. The question is how we manage the increased concussion rate. Um, and there's all kinds of different ideas about tackling and things. But the, the main thing that would help is better coaching and captaining and teaching of how to receive a tackle and how to give one. Because even now, a lot of players don't do it very well. And that's where the injuries come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something I thought I'd bring up has been a bit of a discussion within sort of US uh, sort of schools of thought recently about uh, about concussion, especially in relation to face beats. But obviously, you kind of identified tackling as a main issue, and obviously something that we can really, really have an impact on and help improve. Mm-hmm. Um, just going back to coaching again, how how would you reflect on your tenure? as Team UK head coach, sort of having put, made the notepad, made all these kind of plans, your vision, did you feel like you achieved a lot of that? Almost. Yeah. A lot of what I'd hoped to achieve, I did. And I'd like to think that it made uh, a visible improvement to Team UK and the kind of community around it and the wider teams, especially as kind of had players come in, learn some skills and go back to their teams. So I like to think that that has improved in the way that the whole setup has, is run has significantly improved. But I never quite reached exactly what I wanted to. Um, I always thought we could have done slightly better, especially at World Cup in Frankfurt. And uh, unfortunately, given kind of career and life at the time, I ended up having to step down before I really wanted to, before I felt the job was properly done. Um so in that way, there are some regrets and what ifs, but overall, I'm pretty happy with where we started and where we, we got to. 
Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. Um, so obviously, saying as a coach, kind of came up short in Frankfurt. However, you then went back to playing with Team UK in mm. 2017 and 2018. And obviously, that was when 2017 Team UK achieved gold at European Games. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, what was it like playing for Team UK then, having been the coach and kind of the bigger Forrester figure, and then go back to being just a player within the roster? How, what was that dynamic shift like? It was, in some ways, it wasn't too difficult because obviously I've been working with Emily, who's then the head coach when she was the chaser coach underneath, when I um, underneath me the previous year. Um, and there was an element of the way that I tried to design the coaching system was for something like that to happen. So you have that progression upwards. Um, so in that way, it wasn't too too bad. And also, it felt like a bit of a relief because I was so physically and emotionally exhausted from trying to be a first-year doctor, um, doing all the on-calls, having exams to do, um, traveling all over the place, doing all the coaching, trying to sort of look after family, all that kind of, there's so much going on. There was a bit of relief of, I just have to turn up now and just, I can relax a bit more. But also it was, there was elements that were really difficult because it felt like it was, it was my baby. Um, like I always felt that the Team UK that I gave gave over was very different to the one that we started with. Um, and I, I felt like it was it was my notepad come to life. It was the envision. Uh, it, it was what I had envisioned. It was what I built. I spent years and kind of hours and hours and hours of my life every week building and then giving that over to someone was quite difficult. Um, and it was, a, it was a bit of kind of jealousy and frustration that the first goal yeah. Team UK won was as soon as I handed it over. <laughs> having felt that we should have won the first European Games but let the ball go right at the end and I, despite what others think, I know Lucy said that she never felt, didn't even think we should have got the bronze for World Cup I having been there I disagree and I feel we we could and probably should have beat the USA and actually it was the it was a psychological issue that cracked us and that's what broke it. And there was an element of regret that I couldn't write that wrong. So I still in some way blame myself and that I I just couldn't quite hold everything together at the time. And I still partly blame the fact that I was at that point trying to do too much. I was trying to balance too much of life and career um, and hadn't been able to just quite hold everything together and keep a tag on every player at once. Mm-hmm. I think if I had been able to, I don't think we would have mentally cracked. I think the game would have gone very differently. Uh, so that, there was that element. It was, so it's difficult to not have that ability to kind of um, correct that what that my issue or that wrong. Um, and the fact that they went straight into gold the year that I left it was a bit of a kick. But also it was nice because I got that gold medal. Um, yeah. There was an element of this is the team that I helped build and it, it's won and you know I feel I feel really good. It was great to finally have a gold for Team UK. Uh, okay, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting kind of mix of emotions. Um, obviously, the overall sort of being pride, I guess, and sort of what you mm. create, being a part of that still as a player. And obviously, yeah. you mentioned there the the US game at the 2016 World Cup. 
Uh, yeah. Would you say that looking back at your career, is that sort of your biggest regret within the sport? I think probably, yeah. Yeah. Um, if I had had more time or maybe done it slightly differently, I think we could have, I could have been able to hold things together just enough because it, it was just in that game we had a couple of injuries and a couple of other issues on the sideline, which I'm not going to go into, that it started to slip and then it just kind of got away too quickly before I, we could gather it all and hold it together. And if you, I don't know if it's easy easy to see from the sideline, but if you watch the game back, I think it's around about 10-ish minutes, you can see things change with too many players to make it a tenable team anymore and it all starts to fall away. And you can see the difference because as soon as we had the gap between the USA and the Canada game, I was able, we were able as a coaching team to gather everything back in, shore all the holes, fix all the problems, build the team back together and absolutely trounced Canada. Absolutely hammered them. Um, I think if we've been able to do that slightly earlier, if I've been more on top of things and had more time, I, I, I do genuinely think we could have done much, had much more of a game. I think we had the ability to beat them, the USA. So I think that's one of the biggest regrets. Yeah, yeah sure. The, obviously, you were talking about sort of your work-life balance and not being able to give enough of yourself to the cause. I think that's a real... Yeah. You struggle with amateur sports. And, uh, it used to be like I would do, say, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in hospital, then work Saturday, Sunday night. Um, in fact, it would be, say, so work Saturday, Sunday during the day, then do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, and then finish at 9 a.m. on Friday, go straight from work to the train station to get a train down to Southampton to then do coaching for Saturday, Sunday, to then get back at like 2 a.m. Monday morning to then sleep for five hours, to then go to work again for a week. And just doing that over and over. Yeah. And I just didn't quite have the time in the end. Mm-hmm. That's very, very honest of you. I well, really appreciate that. Uh, so we've got a few minutes left. Uh, we've got some mailbag questions that have been sent in. Okay. Our Facebook page. So uh, a bit of something different. Uh, to ask you. So, yes, the first one. Uh, what does Quidditch need to do to rebound post-pandemic? a practical question oh very practical uh, good one as well i think there's a long answer to this there's multiple long answers <laughs> and there's probably a fairly short one the short one is i think we need to go back two or three years ago and act as we were back then in quidditch um i think the main thing we're going to have to have to rebuild is that investment from all people in the community so everyone new coming in has to be properly invested in the sport um, and volunteering and getting to do stuff for the sport. I think the issue with the sport becoming more professional and more established is that there's a higher expectation. So new players come in, have this expectation, they're going to have eight tournaments that are perfectly run every year. They don't have to do anything for it, just pay their dues. And that's not going to be the case after the pandemic because we've lost so much. I think the, the positive is that post-pandemic, there'll be so many people so desperate to get into physical activity and find a team and make some social connections, they'll be out doing everything and all the sports will be rammed. So I think we'll be able to pick up some of the people who can't get into the other sports because they're too busy. And also a lot of the students who will now be trying to recoup their lost year by doing everything that they possibly can 
So are they trying to suck up that enthusiasm and that motivation and channel it into getting invested in Quidditch? And that's what needs to happen. That's the short answer. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Um, so we're a fun one now. How long can you plank for? And is it longer if I say Ben Morton could do one minute more? Uh, I'm not going to tell you how long I can plank for because I'm going to wait for Ben to tell you how long he can plank and then I'm going to go one minute more. <laughs> <laughs> I will challenge him to it. So this is in reference to one of the Team UK sessions where Ben was captain at the time and I was coach. Um, and to make a point, we agreed to do a, a plank challenge. It goes back to that I wouldn't ask anyone to do anything I couldn't do. Same as Ben. Ben had exactly the same mentality and was Ben is hugely important in the Team UK team from its inception to where it became massively important. Again, I think he doesn't get enough credit. Um, but we ended up doing a plank contest I, it went on for a very long time. <laughs> I just remember everything hurting, but thinking I refuse to lose. Um, and every minute this goes on makes a better point to the rest of the team. I think in the end, we agreed to finish as a draw. But that's only for Ben's sake, because I definitely could have done longer. Mm -hmm. <sighs> well, interesting answer there. Um, what's been your proudest achievement in Quidditch? Ooh. Um... I think Team World Coach has to be up there. It's difficult because there's a few, but Team World Coach is definitely up there. Um, and that recognition for all that work. I think seeing Team UK and actually handing it over as a successful gold-winning team from where it came from was very proud as well, very proud achievement. But also a lot of the stuff with the Chimeras, our dominance, the fact that we're still kind of, there's this glorious Chimeras team of old, which is referred to. And I was in. I was one of the members that built that. That's very proud. Yeah. Uh huh. So, what player slash person has surprised you the most in Quidditch? I'm assuming surprised as in their skill and ability. Uh, um, actually, I guess. <laughs> however, you take it, really. So that's hard because again, there's quite a few. I think. Um, the most, the most surprising, probably, and I, I don't particularly want to tell him this <laughs> because you know. Well, anyway, I think it's probably is Jay Holmes. Um, <laughs> I think my first, my first impression of having seen him when he first started playing was it was just it. It came across that it was all just a bit of a joke for him. And he, they wasn't all that great. Um, there didn't seem to be that much in there, potential-wise, initially. I think he went on to captain Banger um, to a pretty disappointing season for what for a team that used to be amazing. Um, so I, I think initially I didn't think there was much in there. But if you follow his career and where he's gone from there, he is now arguably a bigger force in Quidditch than most people have been at any point um, in the history of Quidditch. And I think that is, is definitely worth kind of acknowledging. Um, I think that has been a bit of a surprise to see where he started to where he's got to. And all power to him. I think he's done an amazing job in what he's done. Uh -huh. I just, yeah. I, I'm... Uh, I can't think of the word now. Yeah, I, 
Not looking forward to his response after he said this. I'm sure I'm sure you'll appreciate that. And uh, just the last question to finish on. Uh, so obviously, you've done all this stuff with with Oxford and the success mm-hmm. there. You had all the stuff with Team UK, and then obviously bring your own career into things with the in- the injury study that you did. Mm-hmm. What do you think has been your biggest impact on the sport? Oh, that's a hard one for me to answer. I'd be interested to hear what other people's thoughts are, actually. Um, yeah, I think probably, probably more related to the coaching and the tactics element of stuff. I think the it's hard to it's hard to say how much of it was due to what I was doing versus the community in general, but I think that the the way that tactics were done and teams were run and established and the the makeup of the community changed with the change of Team UK. And I think that was because we had a very concerted effort to bring in to players from distant teams to train them up and teach them in a way to then send them back out. So I think that's probably it. But it's hard to say because I was I was involved in the stuff that I did. It's hard to see from the outside. So I'd be interested to see what other people. Yeah, think. that's true, I guess. And uh, obviously, other people can tell you then. Uh, well, you can tell you've had an impact on them. So. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You got it. Okay, um, that's it for this second episode of the Total Twitch Podcast. Ash, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been amazing to hear about your stories and kind of the length of your career um, all you've done. Really interesting. So thank you very much. Um, we hope that everyone's enjoyed this episode. Uh, it's a bit of a, a longer one, but glad you stuck with us. Uh, if you want to stay up to date with future episodes, uh, please give the Total Quidditch Facebook page a like. We'll be announcing upcoming guests on there and giving you a chance for you to send in your mailbag questions. So until the next time, keep yourself safe and Live the game. Goodbye.